0: If you're looking to maintain peak brain health, I'd like to introduce you to a cutting-edge new brain support formula from my friends at Thorne. Cinequel. If you're recovering from a head injury or play contact sports, you should pay special attention. Cinequel is formulated with the best research nutrients that support healthy brain structure and cognitive function. Cinequel's active ingredients help maintain cellular energy production, encourage a healthy balance of inflammatory cytokines, provide energy to fuel the nerves, support neurotransmitter production, and help protect against oxidative stress. It's available in two strengths. Cinequel for Everyday Maintenance, and Cinequel Plus, which provides higher amounts of certain nutrients for shorter-term post-impact support. For more information and to purchase Cinequel, just go to drhoffman.com slash thorn. There, you'll also find some of my other favorite Thorn products. That's drhoffman.com slash thorn for the essential nutritional brain support formula, Cinequel. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, we're going to discuss saving the art of medicine. Yeah, saving the art of medicine, because medicine, with all its advancements, high-tech advancements, promises to cure all manner of diseases. Uh, They recently came up with a, quote, cure for sickle cell disease, a devastating medical condition. It's a high-tech accomplishment, but in our rush to come up with all kinds of scientific advances and streamline the practice of medicine, well, maybe we're losing some elements of the traditional doctor-patient relationship. And so today's guest is Alan Sussman, MD. The book is titled "Saving the Art of Medicine, Observations of a Practitioner. And indeed, he is a veteran practitioner. He is a board-certified endocrinologist. He is clinical professor at the University of Washington and author of the book we're talking about today, Staving the Art of Medicine. And he points out that, well, the science of medicine is thriving. The art of medicine has been lost. And we're going to get into that, uh, what's happening uh, in the field of medicine. And he has a wealth of experience uh, that he uh, has related in his book. Uh, he's got a, a long perspective on medicine, as I have. Uh, you know, we we trained uh, in an era before electronic medical records, uh, before uh, artificial intelligence and sophisticated algorithms to tell us how to practice medicine. So without further ado, here's Dr. Sussman. It's a pleasure having you on the program, Dr. Sussman. Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Hi, Ryan. I'm very glad to be here, and it sounds like we'll have a very interesting discussion.
0: Indeed. Uh, so... Uh, give us a little bit of background about uh, how you came to write this book, because it's kind of a reflection on, on a long career. And uh, while, you know, you certainly had a, a very, very illustrious medical career, uh, there are elements of medicine that even early on, uh, you had you found a, a little bit of disillusionment with uh, the way that you were trained and, and some of the medical practices that you encountered, even as a young physician.
1: Yes. I, as you say, I was trained uh, bookish, trained to learn information, and the more information I learned, and the more scientific it was, the better doctor I thought I would be. But when it comes to practice, and I started practicing, I quickly learned that it was very important to be with the patient. develop a relationship with them was very important to me and the patient and quite frankly led to less burnout that happens to a lot of physicians because they just get overworked by the amount of information that they need to have and and use rather than just being with the patient uh, because we are all connected and that's what I'm looking towards.
0: Indeed and, and so what we put on the pedestal these days is something called evidence-based medicine. It's even an acronym, EBM. And what it uh, teaches us is that uh, we need to do randomized clinical trials to validate some of the things that we think work. Uh, It used to be the case that doctors uh, relied on intuition, uh you know in the 19th century the early 20th century uh but now uh we rely on the results of evidence based medicine clinical trials and medical journals uh, that are peer reviewed uh and uh you actually have a very interesting uh perspective on that on the one hand it, you know clearly uh you see it in as advanced an advance but you see it also there's there's some drawbacks associated with a very uh uh just a total science-based approach.
1: Yes. the I, I have definitely practiced a lot of evidence-based medicine. So I'm not going to diss it. It just needs to be rebalanced. Uh, the In terms of evidence-based medicine, it very often the idea is it's science, so therefore it's objective truth. And it isn't. Um, Science, while it tries to be objective, can never be completely objective because it's us, it's humans that are evaluating it. And we all have our biases. A very common one is if you do a study and it doesn't show what you want it to show, your tendency to want to publish it would be low. Plus the fact even the journals very well might not want to uh Uh, publish it so so it becomes so so the information becomes biased in one direction or as I uh, as when I reflect back and I guess I was an expert in my field as well that there was at times what I felt was an expert paradox that can happen you go and see a physician because you say aha that's the expert in the field so that's the best information I can get But human beings are very complex and can't be always and usually can't even be just defined in one specific manner. The result is that the expert is going down one line because that's what they're the expert in when someone who's more holistic might be able to see more what's going on and present other options that ultimately might be better and more beneficial to the patient.
0: We do indeed in this field of medicine become siloed. And increasingly, you know, since you and I began uh, our training, uh, specialization and subspecialization uh, has really uh, soared. You know, more and more people, uh, you know, become... Uh, I, I was on a bike trip recently, and I met an orthopedic surgeon uh, who does one type of surgery. He just does uh, spinal surgery on children uh, with scoliosis. Doesn't even do it adults. Just like... You know, very niched. Yes, uh, yes, And the field of endocrinology has always uh, been fascinating to me because uh, it, it's not just a follow-the-numbers uh, kind of field. It really requires a lot of nuance and interpretation. Uh, and an example that uh, I know is familiar to you is looking at thyroid function. I mean, that's right in the wheelhouse of endocrinologists. And when you see a patient uh, who has what is called a borderline TSH – you know, say a TSH of, I don't know, let's pick a number, 4.5. Uh, that might be uh, a clarion call to put them on thyroid medication. But say the patient says they feel fine, or perhaps the patient is a little older. Maybe they're 70 years of age. They say they feel great. The number's a little high. Uh, do you automatically pull the trigger, you know, when it reaches a certain threshold? Uh, that would be kind of a paint-by-numbers medicine, right? Because the numbers will dictate your response.
1: Right. And uh, in fact, thyroid is a very good example of that as particularly as you uh, as what you mentioned, because even the evidence-based medicine has come up with more studies that suggest the TSH level, which the higher the TSH level is, that means the lower the thyroid is. TSH is thyroid stimulating hormone. It stimulates the thyroid to put out thyroid hormones. And the higher the number is, the more you have to push the thyroid to put out the amount of thyroid that needs to be there. And as you get older, actually your TSH level goes up. Um, And there's even studies that have been done that show that when you treat more elderly people with thyroid hormone to get their TSH level down, The ultimate results are not any better. In fact, they might even be worse in terms of the outcome of the patients. And I I,
0: I think I read a study once uh, which suggested that if you have slightly high TSH, but, you know, not wickedly high, not, you know, 25 or 40, but just a little, you know, what would be considered the term is subclinical hypothyroidism just borderline that actually may be associated with longevity and i tend to think of those those uh, giant tortoises on, on the galapagos that live you know to be you know 140 years old uh and they're kind of slow and lethargic but they do live a long time it's almost like their uh their aging process has been slowed down
1: maybe maybe it's the old story of the tortoise and the hare
0: indeed <laughs> yeah right. Who gets there uh, ultimately uh, wins the race. So um, okay, so you know there, there's uh, new new advances in medicine that are that are being touted, uh, and I just pulled up an article here about AI. AI is the buzzword these days in, in many fields, but it's also the buzzword in, in medicine, and it it offers you know some real promise because using AI we can better analyze uh, you know say. Uh, CT scans and MRIs because, you know, they have the ability to recognize patterns uh, where human eyes would just glaze over them. Uh, but here's one headline. Chat GPT flub drug information questions. GPTb provided incorrect or incomplete information when asked about drugs and in some cases invented references to support his answers to recent studies found so you know do 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 our listeners face the prospect that uh, in the future when they visit a, a doctor that they'll just sit down at computer screen and uh, dial in some questions and uh, the answers will be spit out and medications will be dispensed on the spot or is that a bridge too far and is that really reducing the practice of medicine to uh, beyond the point where it's going to have good outcomes
1: yes the a, yes when electronic medical records first came out I was not a big very proponent of that and they were actually developed more as a, a tool for uh, financially uh, working with patients than that it helped for the benefit of the patient I think there are, with the CHAT-GPT and what's called the LLM models, more of a chance of there being being some assistance to doctors. But as you're saying, uh, in many areas, it would be assistance. I agree completely in some areas, uh, such as uh, looking at mammograms and, as you're saying, a lot of radiologic procedures, it very well can be better than human beings can be. But when it comes to diagnosis, it can be very good in terms of giving the physician the opportunity to look and re- review all the possibilities that exist, and some that he might not, he or she might not have thought of. But ultimate decisions uh, in terms of medical care is a very complex uh, problem. Um, let me just give one example that that's uh, that's that's involved in this. Slightly. Uh, I, I was very involved in evidence-based studies and I'd have patients that would come in and the old question about your cholesterol level, level is high, whatever that meant. There's subfractions, and that can be looked at. Uh, and then said, what should we do? Uh, and you start, I'd start giving them different information from different studies. And after about five minutes, they would be looking at me cross-eyed.
0: Hmm. So it's like say, too, too much information. Like
1: it's like, Atlanta, it's, a, it's a it's a TMI situation. Exactly. And 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 so I, I I look at them and say I actually have very good news for you. Most of the information that I'm giving you will probably change or be modified <laughs> dramatically in the next five years. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that can be constant and consistent and maybe most important is our relationship.
0: Oh, that's so, profound. so the
1: relationship with the doctor is, I think, still going to be very, very important and well, therapeutic.
0: I, there's a saying, uh, it's not how low you go, it's how you get there. And when it comes to cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, that may be an important statement because we have drugs that can modify these factors. Uh, but there's nothing that stacks up to lifestyle. Uh, as a means of achieving proper goals. I mean, when lifestyle fails or people are unable to comply, yes, there's medication to rescue us. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the best way to optimize our health and lifespans and avoid disease is to optimize these factors in the natural way.
1: Yes, yes. The, I, I, I look at it in terms of uh, the term homeostasis, that our body is in balance um, and it then can get out of balance in some ways. And quite frankly, sometimes, as we discussed earlier with thyroid, sometimes we think it's getting out of balance when we're looking at at numbers when maybe it's just going into a new balance that might be important for the whole being. Hmm. So, so when you look at, so when you look at treatment and using pharmaceuticals and, you know, statins are the most important ones that are generally been used, um, for lowering cholesterol. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a sledgehammer. Uh, it's a very, it's, it's a very focused means of trying to lower cholesterol that they could make the numbers look quite good, but but other parts of the body have to react to that in order to in order to try to keep it in keep things in balance or or are reacting to it in some ways so i agree that always 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 the first way to go is how you as the individual can work with the situation you're in to optimize your health instead of going to a medication which can lead to good numbers but might also have other adverse effects. As we all well know, they can all have side effects.
0: So much of medicine these days is by guidelines. And EMRs even facilitate guidelines because there'll be sometimes you'll put in some information about a patient and your EMR will spit out, uh, would you like to put this patient on a cholesterol-lowering drug? And it'll give you options, you know, the ones that are covered by insurance probably, are the ones that are going to be favored. Uh, but, you know, so it— and. You point out in the book that uh, our guidelines have changed. You know, uh, optimal cholesterol used to be uh, LDL cholesterol used to be um, 130 or less. Now, uh, for many people, 100 or less, or people who have some risk, 70 or less, or even get it into the low double digits. And while there are benefits to that, and I prescribe statins, uh, there are also our problems associate the one size fits all approach because, as you well know, there are patients with very high LDL cholesterol uh, who are nonagenarians and centenarians. Uh, so, uh, you know, how is a how is it that we can meet that challenge in a modern era when we're so reliant on guidelines and algorithms that uh, basically tell doctors what to do?
1: Yes. Well, well, I think I think the first thing is is. To hear the word guideline and understand what it is. It's not telling you this is the truth of what to do. This is a path. This is one way to go. And how is it, de- and how was that determined? They get a group of experts. This is their field that they're interested in, who are very conversant in all the literature and studies that are relevant. And then they get together and they literally can try to thrash out some generalizations that could be made. So first of all, what you're doing is you're doing one generalization on top of another. The evidence-based medicine itself is not specific for an individual. It's for a population. Mm -hmm. And and one sort of fun little uh, note uh, in terms of studies (laughs) is that they are all weird. W, but well, not all, but they usually are weird. W e i r d. That oh. was a term that was that came up and was used that said Western educated industrialized rich democratic participants <laughs> in the study. So, so it's weird in the sense it's very it's a very it's not a it's a very non exclusive process. Mm-hmm. It's very focused, so so you're telling what should be done for a population, not for an individual.
0: Right. So this kind of argues uh, for a personalized medicine approach, where you look at uh, the person, and they may well fit within uh, that uh, that pattern uh, and may benefit from medication. But so often we approve medications based on a trial involving a few hundred or a few thousand individuals, uh, and then when the these drugs or treatments are unleashed on the unsuspecting populace, uh, in post-marketing studies, we see problems arising because uh, you know, less uh, fit people take them, elderly people take them, people with all kinds of god-awful medical conditions take them, and then people who are on multiple drugs, other drugs, polypharmacy occurs, and you know, we, see, we see drawbacks to some of the medications that seem so highly promising.
1: Yes. Well, well, I think you're you're introducing a very important word, polypharmacy. Um, uh, because, Because the more you start looking at individual areas that you feel you want to optimize, that can lead to more and more use of more medications. And while each by themselves, you can see how that fits from one part when you put it all together and add three or four medications, Again, the chance of having some other adverse effect occur becomes greater and greater as the body tries to adjust to all the different sways that are going on by pushing, by pushing our physiology in different directions.
0: You know, you did an interesting uh, clinical trial on uh, a test that we rely on quite a lot, which is the hem- hemoglobin A1c test. Right. You know, it's a lot of people, uh, you know, they know their IQ. They know their social security number. They know their uh, cholesterol and HDL. And now hemoglobin A1C is becoming so popular because we want to optimize our hemoglobin A1C. But you actually did an interesting study as an endocrinologist, a clinical trial or uh, some study. study That looked at how that sometimes can be misleading. Can you explain how sometimes you can get uh, the wrong impression from a hemoglobin A1C?
1: Yes, Yes, the well first of all, hemoglobin A1C, if you're if you have diabetes, you know what hemoglobin A1Cs are, because it's an it's a measurement of how your average blood sugar is doing over a two or three month period of time, as sugar that's attached to red cells, and red cells turn over about every ninety days, and so you end up eventually with a different milieu in which the sugar is in. Over that, over every over a period of time. It so unlike a,
0: a fasting glucose or a random glucose, which you can do every day or even several times a day, that's a test where you do it and then you wait ninety days to see if there's a change. Because if you do it sooner, it's going to be you know not right. What right. Talking it, about. It's
1: confusing.
0: Yeah. Right. It's
1: it's a, it's and 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 so I I had you see this is the important thing of really being uh, really realizing that numbers are numbers, and that's not a person. You have to. You have to decide how to use that in a clinical situation. And particularly in diabetes, hemoglobin A1C has become an extraordinary measure of of using it for success, or I guess you could say failure, as well as how well a diabetic is doing with their treatment regimen. And so you end up with a given number, and you're always trying to get to at least that number, if not even lower. Uh, but I had a group of patients where I would do hemoglobin A1Cs and, and was seeing them over years. But also, I was very strict about them also doing regular blood sugar testing, uh, with hopefully the, with fi- a
0: finger stick. You know, the
1: the, the old finger stick. Way. Yeah, that's sure. right. The, uh, right, right, right. Even though we are now continuous glucose monitoring, something a little different. But with finger sticks, and uh, and 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 when I was around. I made I had a book that I gave them will that they had to fill in the numbers and bring that in. So, so to me it was very important that the patient always be aware of what was going on. Uh, and I would look at these numbers. Uh, sometimes uh, patients would try to uh, budge a little bit the results because they wanted to look good or for <laughs> every other reason, Right. But but generally. But generally, you know, you sort of learned which ones would tend to do that. And you and I would get these results where the person seems to be honestly giving the blood sugar results. And I look at them and I look at the hemoglobin A1C and the hemoglobin A1C doesn't look right. And it looks like it's higher Mm -hmm. uh, at a level that needs to be treated. But then you look at the blood sugar results and and I'm saying, boy, these are Great results. Could it be that they're just having a pizza uh, and not recording results, and that's what's causing it? And I would do this over years and say there has. I think there's a difference between the groups, and by by doing a study where I compared these outliers in my mind to, to other people with the same hemoglobin A1c who I felt were consistent with those numbers, I was I was able to show that the hemoglobin A1C was not accurate, but that the blood sugars were more accurate for the state of the patient. Huh. And the results had to do with the hemoglobin uh, probably being abnormal in some ways that was not reacting huh. in the usual way.
0: That's, that's a very nuanced uh, approach because uh, I very you know faithfully monitor my patient's hemoglobin a1c especially you know when i want to optimize patients with metabolic syndrome you know maybe they're they're not you know diabetic outright diabetic but they're like 59 and i say hey let's let's get it down to you know 54 or 55 five as a as a marker of okay. your improved metabolic status but what you're saying is that uh, hemoglobin a1c has the potential to be a little misleading and mechanistically you say it has something to do with the characteristics of the blood the the binding of the sugar to the hemoglobin molecule or something along those lines and it differs from person to person wow okay right
1: and and, and anemias can do that too I mean like if you have sickle cell anemia actually as you mentioned before that, actually, will lead to a altered. You have to look at that in an altered way, then too.
0: So, if you if you so, have like a thalassemia trait or something like that, it's going to screw up the hemoglobin A one C. You know, like a a funny kind of hemoglobin.
1: I I, I it, yes, it definitely can. There there's a list that's a yard long on ones that lead to, to different uh, changes. Wow. Uh, the interesting thing is usually it's in the opposite direction from what I what I found is rather than the a when seen being abnormal. artificially better low. Better if it's artificially yeah, low. Okay, it was actually the opposite. Okay. Um uh, and and the important thing to knowing this group was, there would be a reflex of saying is, their blood sugars are not well controlled, mm-hmm. so, I'm going to increase medication.
0: Yeah, when and it wasn't the end
1: result. When it wasn't working. And awarded. the end result could be low blood sugars.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you great. I mean that I think really exemplifies how. Physicians uh, should trust but verify when it comes to tests. Okay. Uh, because think, think, yeah, and think okay. it through, and 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 personalized care for patients, uh, and connect with patients, and know a little bit about the patient, and don't just stare into the computer screen, uh, and uh, you know address uh, aberrant numbers on the screen. Uh, I think that's an important part of saving the art of medicine. That's the title of. Uh, the book we're discussing today, Observations of a Practitioner, the practitioner being today's guest, Alan Sussman. Uh, Dr. Sussman will be back, and I have a whole lot more questions. We're also going to take a look at uh, some of the uh, practices of uh, considerate integrative medicine or holistic medicine uh, and uh, how uh, these practices can uh, really help bridge the gap between high-tech medicine and, uh, proper patient care. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.